Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich & Associates, since 1997 working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical, and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at yankwich.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Several years ago, the legal scholar Cass Sunstein watched an experiment in Colorado. In the experiment, people sat down, and by themselves, without consulting with anyone, they wrote down their opinions on climate change, on same-sex unions, and on affirmative action. Then they consulted with each other, and they weighed in on what they thought. And I should mention that this experiment was done in Boulder, which happens to lean kind of left. Still, there was some diversity of thought when participants wrote down their ideas. But after they consulted with each other, the liberal views had triumphed. The group had almost coalesced into a single left-leaning unit. The experiment was also done in Colorado Springs, which is more right-leaning, and the same thing happened, except the ideological unit at the end was right-leaning. Cass Sunstein has written about the power of other people to affect us in ways that we don't often understand. It often happens now through social media. He's the author of Hashtag Republic, Divided Democracy in the Age of Social Media. He's a professor at Harvard Law School. Cass, welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you. A pleasure to be here. So, um, I mean, I think we all know that groups can make you feel like you should wear a certain thing more than more than something else or that you should buy a certain gadget that other people have. But in some ways, thinking that a group can make you shift your core beliefs, that's a little concerning. It is, uh, especially if the group is shifting you in a direction that isn't good and if the group is preempting your own capacity to reflect for yourself. There are some beliefs, for example, that dropped objects fall and that human beings can't fly, that it would be very hard to shake those beliefs. Uh, But with respect to politics, there are a lot of things we think that are just uh, an artifact of the people with whom we find ourselves surrounded. Do we go along with other people in these kinds of experiments? I talked about this one in Colorado because we're scared of what will happen if we don't. Is there like a cost for not going along with what the larger group thinks? There are actually two major reasons, uh, one of which is that if we find ourselves in a group of, let's say, people we kind of like and we want them to like us, we might shift in their direction or in the direction of the dominant view for the reason you give. In the kind of mild cases, we don't want them to look askance at us or to think we're uh, stupid or obtuse. In the extreme case, we might not want to be ostracized or lose our relationship with people we care about. But I think the more dominant and uh, intriguing explanation explanation isn't so much about currying favor with the group. It's about the information given by what other people think. So if you think about it, most of the things we think, you know, that George Washington was the first president, that uh, Albert Einstein existed, that the earth goes around the sun, those things we don't have personal knowledge of, we are deferring to the informational signals, really, given by what other people think. So if you're a group of people who on a political issue or even a scientific issue tend to think something, if we don't have private information indicating that they're wrong, it's kind of reasonable to think, oh, well, if they all think it, it's probably true. So you've argued that there's a fundamental change going on right now in terms of group dynamics and information dissemination. 
Now, I just wonder, what is different now? I mean, the kinds of studies that we've talked about in which people conformed and people took their lead from other people, those have been going on for a long time. Uh, what is different right now, in your view? Uh, what's going on now is uh, a technological capacity to uh, form an informational cocoon or an echo chamber, which has more ease and speed than at any time in human history. So I wouldn't say human beings have changed. I wouldn't even want to make strong claims about how the echo chamber effect is different now from what it was in uh, 1910 or 1810 or 1710 or the time of Adam and Eve. I'd say instead that by virtue of the proliferation of options and the capacity of people who think, you know, Trump is the greatest president ever or Trump is the worst thing that's ever happened or that the immigration problem is destroying America or the immigration problem isn't a problem at all. It's a great thing. The capacity of people to find a niche of people who confirm and intensify their pre-existing views, that is a, a technological advance, let's say, that is um, unprecedented in human history. And that link between some features of the human mind and what we've been discussing and the capacity that social media offers, th that is novel. So I wonder about that technological novelty, because if you went back 100 or more years, you could find people picking up newspapers that reflected their point of view because many in many towns there were two newspapers and one was kind of the democratic and one was kind of the republican or the left-leaning or the right-leaning you know newspaper um 20 years ago just over 20 years ago fox news started and that in some ways made msnbc into what it is and that whole dynamic started going on in television which has been really important i think is social media a totally different animal, you know, I mean, or is it related to these past technologies? The latter. So it's, it's literally true that the social media have functions and fun and capacities that no technology had before. So that's literally true. It's also true that the capacity for uh, self-selection into something that is congenial is not new. And that isn't new in terms of 15 years ago, because many years before 15 years ago, as you say, you could have a community of people who thought the same thing, or you could have a media outlet that allowed you to, you know, ver go veer right or veer left. And that's not to say that the problem-solving capacity of the United States 30 years ago or 60 years ago or 90 years or 100 years, 20 years ago was perfect. It's instead to say that right now it's highly imperfect. Over 40,000 people died on the highways in uh, 2016. What are we going to do about that? American infrastructure isn't where it should be. Democrats and Republicans are clear on that. Uh, what are we going to do about that? We have a problem of persistent poverty in the United States. Uh, how are we going to diminish that problem? And those are three pretty urgent questions. We're talking about dead people and with respect to infrastructure, people's capacity to navigate uh, you know, travel. And that's really important. And the existence of polarization along the dimensions we're describing, whether or not it's worse than it was 30 years ago, it is a significant contributor to the incapacity to extend people's lives. 
I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking to Cass Sunstein, a Harvard Law professor and author of the book, Hashtag Republic, Divided Democracy in the Age of Social Media. So I wonder how uh, physical separation intersects with online separation. I mean, we've certainly seen self-sorting behavior in terms of where people choose to live. And then I wonder if that can become a kind of uh, destructive cycle where, you know, you don't hear uh, competing views day to day from the people around you. And then liberals watch MSNBC and conservatives watch Fox News. um, and, And you think to yourself, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. That's exactly what I've been hearing. That's a great point. And uh, there's reason to think it's true. That is, if you are physically separated into a group of people who think something, chances are you're going to have clarity that that thing is true. And that might diminish your eagerness to read falsehoods, like who wants to read that dropped objects don't fall or the Holocaust didn't happen. Then you might similarly think that the view that President Trump is fantastic or President Trump is horrible, it's like that. It's just really clear and you don't want to read the opposing view. I would say that the full data that we have does support the echo chamber hypothesis, but it also has some pleasing uh, footnotes to that, which is a lot of people really are curious, and they do, whether they live in Boston or in uh, Colorado Springs or, you know, right-wing country or left-wing country, they don't think, I just want to read what I already believe. So there's a ton of diversity out there with respect to taste for information. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about how, you know, since there are these points of crossover, How can people who are in these orbits, maybe living around people who are like them, reading things that are generally pleasing to them, watching things that are generally pleasing to them, so and so on and so forth. How do you break out of that? Um, And in some ways, the Internet is a good tool here because it means you don't have to, like, move. Yeah, it's fantastic. So there are tools that have become more plentiful in the recent past where you can, you know, read outside your echo chamber. And some of them are apps that have a name kind of like read outside your echo chamber. (laughs) There are about eight of them. And they will, one of them just shows you uh, how your reading habits are skewing left or right. And if you don't want to use an app, you can just think informally, you know, this week did I read anything that uh, jarred me in a productive way, or that meaning made me change my view a bit, or jarred me in a way that made me at least have clarity on what uh, good and smart people on the other side think. So if you have a have a month where you're you haven't encountered things that are different from what you thought before, let's say, from which you learned something, you might think, well, next month I'm going to eat my vegetables and give that a try. Do you do this yourself? And if you do, what are a couple of things you've read recently that have made you think, hmm, maybe I should kind of think differently about this issue or that? Well, I worked in the Obama administration, and I tend, you know, more to agree with President Obama than President Trump. But I try to read the Wall Street Journal with regularity. And I've read material on uh, the minimum wage in particular not necessarily within the last few weeks, but definitely within the last few years, that have made me think significant increases in the minimum wage are are, are a risky uh, idea because they can cause disemployment effects and because the target of the minimum wage 
isn't only poor people. It's a lot of people who are doing just fine, who have parents who are fine and they're trying to enter the workforce. And uh, it may be that you're going to freeze them out of the workforce. The earned income tax credit is a lot better than the minimum wage. And that's something that a lot of conservatives have been pressing. And I'm convinced not that we should repeal the minimum wage, but that large increases in the minimum wage of the sort that many Democrats support, uh, that's not a very good idea. There's been so much talk about this very issue of political polarization or in this new age where people people don't talk to each other, people don't want to talk to each other, people live in different places, people have different you know online realities. Where do you see this headed? Are people sick of that? Are they just retreating ever more into their own universes? What's happening? I think the old New York Yankee Yogi Berra said something like predictions are hard, especially about the future. <laughs> yep. And that, something like that is wise. So what we're seeing now is that on the part of providers of information, whether it's Facebook or the New York Times or, you know, TV and radio stations all over the country, there's very productive focus on the problem we're discussing. And that productive focus is leading toward more respectful engagement with multiple points of view. Facebook, I'm hopeful, will rethink its newsfeed, which is uh, right now a contributor. It's not the source, but it's a contributor to the echo chamber effect. I think Facebook, from its public pronouncements, is alert to this and we will see something different. In terms of Washington, uh, there's not a lot the government can or should do about this, but on the part of many politicians, there's uh, alertness to this. And I'll single out Senator McCain and former President Obama as two who ran against each other, but both of whom are really alert to this problem and doing what they can to counteract it. Cass Sunstein is author of the book, Hashtag Republic, Divided Democracy in the Age of Social Media. He served as administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs under President Obama, and he's a professor at Harvard Law School. Cass, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Great pleasure. Hey, podcast listeners, if you're looking for a way to get even more Innovation Hub into your life, and I'm not 100% sure that you should be, but if you are, that's great. Check out our Facebook Live broadcast, which is every Friday, 9.30 a.m. And you're wondering, you know, it's Friday. What's the show going to be about this weekend? Well, we will talk about that. We will also give you a look behind the scenes, and you will get a chance to ask me questions, and I'll try to think of interesting answers to them. You can watch Facebook Live by going to facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. Thanks for listening. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. In 1979, one of my favorite television stations began broadcasting. It was started by a guy who, before he started a TV station, was famous mostly for escorting the first lady, Lady Bird Johnson, down the aisle at her daughter's wedding. But his real love was media. He'd been a radio DJ, a press secretary, a media reporter. So it probably wasn't a surprise that in the late 70s, Brian Lamb had an idea that didn't just change TV, it changed politics. 
It was called the Cable Satellite Public Affairs Network, C-SPAN. And C-SPAN, even though it's low-key, has become part of American pop culture. Here's a recent clip from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Coming up at 10 a.m. on C-SPAN, the House inquiry into Russia's tampering in the election. Hey, what's the holdup, guys? You done with these promos? Hey, Chuck, what's it, two? At two is a debate about whether Representative Nunes should step aside in the Russian probe. Well, what happened to the FBI testimony on the investigation into Russia? Oh, God, that's now a closed meeting and is held on Wednesday. No, that's the House committee questioning of Roger Stone on his Russian connections. No, you mean the House committee questioning of Carter Page on his Russian connections. Wait, those are different guys? God, I, so. I don't know. How is anybody... I mean, it, it, it is... Everyone out. I am new boss, Ivan Cispanovich. Brian Lamb, not Ivan Cispanovich, joins us. Brian Lamb, welcome. Hi, Kara. <laughs> so how do you feel when you hear C-SPAN, um, which obviously is famous for just broadcasting the proceedings on the Senate floor and the House floor, kind of absorbed into pop culture that way? Well, I have to tell you that we have a, a pretty good audience that registers among young people and I've always thought it they didn't really watch C-SPAN as much as they watch Saturday Night Live and Colbert <laughs> and Jon Stewart, and they think they've watched us. So uh, we love the publicity. Did you get any pushback initially from uh, politicians when you said, I want to broadcast hearings or you know whatever it is, I, I, I want to put you on television? People said, oh, yeah, gosh, I don't know how introducing cameras into these rooms and these chambers, I don't know how it's going to change people's behavior. Because I think that's one of the objections that a lot of people have to cameras in courts and in and in political areas that people perform for the cameras instead of focusing on sort of the task at hand. Well, what was interesting, and because I'm an old guy now and I was a young guy then, um, the old timers were the ones that by and large were opposed to the idea of bringing television cameras into the chambers of the House and the Senate. The history of television in the hearing rooms is a bit uh, different. The Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, that they named one of the buildings after, was totally opposed to cameras ever being in the House hearing rooms. And so he had a, a moratorium on it as long as he was Speaker. The Senate was not like that. They were always open. And the House kept watching and resenting the fact that the Senate was getting all the attention. <laughs> and. Yeah, and it's, it's it's kind of the story of openness in Washington. Every time one says, we're going to be open, and the other says no, eventually the one that says no eventually has to open. And the only ones that haven't done that uh, so far uh, are the Supreme Court members who refuse to open it up to cameras. But almost everybody else sees the value of the public being able to watch how the decisions are being made. Do you ever uh, think yourself watching what people do in, in congressional hearings or... Uh, you know, on the floor of the House or Senate, do you ever think, oh, I can tell they're playing to the cameras here and and maybe it would be nice if we could turn them off for a while so that they could do some of those backroom deals that maybe would get something done? I do not. Okay. Um, I think um, there are times when I look, just like you suggest, I look and say, obviously, they're playing to the cameras, but it never leads me to think that they ought to turn them off. Uh, I've always thought these are adults. They have been elected by their constituencies, and the constituency and the adults who have been elected ought to be able to figure out how to do this in front of cameras. And keep in mind, at all times, that's my money, that's your money, 
and the people can watch his money. It's $4 trillion worth of tax money, and they ought to be able to do that work in public, except in the case of a national security issue. Do you ever actually look at the ratings of C-SPAN and think about what people are watching and what people aren't? I think about it, but we don't have ratings. And um, in some ways, I don't even want to watch because that would defeat uh, ratings because that would defeat uh, what our purpose is. I mean, there are occasions where we'll cover something that maybe in the entire United States, there might be 5,000 people watching it. Hmm. But if it's the right 5,000, it'll matter. And then other times when everybody's covering the State of the Union or whatever, our numbers will be maybe a million or so. But I don't know. And we've never known. Uh, we've never had the Nielsen thing. And uh, I hope we don't have to start it. But we have no ratings. We have no stars. We have no commercials. <laughs> That's a great tagline. We've got no ratings. We've got no stars. We're just here. <laughs> and we are so inexpensive. I mean, give me an example. Every month we get six pennies from every home that we go into. Hmm. ESPN gets late latest figure I saw was eight dollars and twenty five cents. So, um, of course, they're incredibly valuable and incredibly successful, mm-hmm. and people do love sports more than almost anything else. And I don't want to act like I'm fooling myself. We are not exactly, uh, as somebody once wrote, the fastest turtle in the pet shop. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just what it is. And so far, so good. It's, uh, I feel very comfortable knowing that, um, a bunch of human beings who run these for-profit companies have stuck with us for 38 years. Uh, so I, uh, mentioned before that I am a C-SPAN fan. Uh, there is one thing though that I'm not a big fan of, which is call-in shows. And I feel like callers often come in with statements rather than questions. They've got these very strong opinions. But I wonder, is it important to you to get those opinions out there? Well, Kara, you know during the last election that an enormous number of people in the media missed what happened. They didn't know the depth of the feeling on people out there and why they were thinking the way they were thinking when they voted for Donald Trump. We didn't have any surprises in that area. We had listened to And we split the lines up, one left, one right, one Democrat, one Republican, one independent, that kind of thing. There was no surprise for us uh, in listening to them. And that's part of the reason for the program. It's Mm. they can't we we don't mind that they get on their soapbox. There are a lot of people, though, in politics that refuse to take calls. Mm. They don't want to mess up their hands in that kind of a people to people kind of thing. And they avoid them like crazy. Then there are others that don't mind it at all. And as far as I know. No one has lost their life from appearing on a C-SPAN calling show. <laughs> so there's nothing really to worry about. And anybody that is on uh, knows how to handle themselves. They're in the public light. And so that serves a purpose, just like everything else we do, for a slice of the audience. Mm-hmm. I-, I think I'm right in saying this. Cher has been one of your call-in people, right? Just doesn't she Cher call in has, from time to time? But so was Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And so was Teddy Kennedy. Hmm. I mean, it was it's strange over the years of who's called in uh, because people, they hear something. And that was the case of President Reagan. And they wanted to set the record straight. Huh. So uh, and this it is also, while he was president. This he was like calling from the White House. Yeah. OK. Yeah. He, we had been down to the White House and he had met with 45 students 
And we recorded the interview with the 45 students, came back to the studio, ran the 30-minute program. He had gone back to the living quarters and had not been prompted by anybody because nobody wanted him to call, I can tell you at the time. I remember that's the last thing the troika around him wanted him to do. And all of a sudden, his, he, got, he called the White House operator and said, get me on that program. And uh, she did. And, uh, and it was fabulous because the kids couldn't believe it when he called in. Huh. So you, you talked a, we talked a little bit about um, the last election. Um, we've got, obviously, a relatively young administration in the White House. Uh, and you've seen a lot of administrations. I talked about that, you know, all the way going back to, to the Johnson administration. Um, does this feel I, I feel like it's a common question that you ask people. How has Washington changed over time? What have you seen? How does this compare? And you've been around Washington, so let me ask you, does this feel like a like a normal sort of relatively young administration? Or as many people, both who like President Trump and don't like him, would say, is Donald Trump different from most of the politicians that you've ever seen? Yeah, but most politicians are different from the politicians I've ever seen. Hmm. In other words, you couldn't have lived through the Nixon administration or the Johnson administration, and I was in my 20s then, without seeing um, some very difficult times. This man is different by a long shot, and I, you know, everybody in the country thinks he's different. And uh, I know what you're getting at here. Well, I don't know what you're getting at. I suspect <laughs> what you're getting at here is that, uh, that the people are deeply divided over this man and what's going on. But I've lived through deeply deep division hmm. uh, with LBJ and the Vietnam War, very deep division, mm-hmm. uh, and deep division on Richard Nixon uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, he basically had to leave office. There's mm-hmm. n- been nothing like that ever in history. Uh, and so I lived through Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. impeached, right, uh, right. not convicted, but impeached. Right. If somebody said to you, and I mean, you I'm sure you've heard it. Look, when you started out, there was no uh, CNN, clearly no Fox News, um, no MSNBC. Um, Now we've got a whole bunch of all news channels. If there were to be uh, something like the uh, Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings, uh, when we see hearings about, you know, the current uh, investigations into Russia, those things are very frequently covered, sometimes wall to wall. The the Neil Gorsuch hearings we saw covered wall to wall um, on cable channels. Who needs C-SPAN? They're just duplicating something that now, that once was novel, but now is, you know, the province of a lot of people. Well, I, that's, I think about that all the time. Um, I'm glad they're all carrying it. There used to be a time when the networks, CBS, NBC, and ABC, would get together and say, you cover one day, I'll cover the next, which allowed you know, uh, the money to keep rolling in and not have the kind of coverage that uh, all the networks could have given it. But more than anything else, we are more important when no one is there. We're not important when everybody is there, except that we will never comment on what you're watching. So if you want a place to go where you can watch the entire process without having somebody tell you what you just saw, we are there. The other thing, though, that I think we do that's just as important as that is that we have an archive and anybody in the country and the world, for that matter, can watch anything we've covered free of charge in its entirety. 
at any time. We have 225,000 hours in our archive, and it's free. Hmm. Plus, we then take a hearing and run it in prime time or run it overnight or run it over the weekends to give people a choice. Right. So uh, I think it's all worked out very well for everybody in the process. And along the way, we've gotten a lot more voices by having a MSNBC and a Fox and a CNN and, and all the business networks. I think it's been a tremendous plus instead of uh, anything else. One of the things that you've done a lot is um, host programs where people have mostly written books, but they've done other things, too, and that's why you're interviewing them, um, book notes and, and Q&A. When you look back, I know this is a hard question, but when you look back, are there a couple people that you point to where, like, the interview still stays with you? The first one that comes to mind, yeah, lots of them, by the way, but the first one that comes to mind is Shelby Foote. Mm-hmm. We did a, this is going to sound strange, we did a three-hour interview with Shelby Foote in Memphis, Tennessee, in his bedroom. <laughs> That's memorable. You'll remember that. Here's the reason, though. <laughs> That's where he wrote his books on the Civil War. Hmm. Um, and he would, he actually spent, during the time that he wrote, he would spend alone time in his bedroom <clears throat> writing these books and sleeping in that room while he was, you know, he wrote a million words on the Civil War. But there was a fascinating moment for me in the interview with Shelby Foote when we finished talking about how he wrote and all that, and we were taking calls from all over the country. And by the way, people love to call in and talk to these authors. It's a, You can just hear it in their voice. Mm. I said, what do you do, Mr. Foote, when you finish a book. And he said, well, here's what I do. I I spend oh, three or four months reading Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past. <laughs> sure. Said, Little light reading. No, I said, sure. I said you, you're kidding me. He walked me over to his bookshelf and there were the seven volumes sitting on the bookshelf. And, you know, it's hard to believe that somebody because I've never read it. I, I have read enough of Proust to know that I wouldn't read the seven volumes. Uh, <laughs> he picked up the book, he opened it up, and he showed me, written down on the flap there, the, the nine times that he had read Remembrance of Things Past and wow. the date. Wow. So I tend to remember those kind of moments, and mm. there are lots of them over mm. the years. Mm. And you're so young, Kara, that someday when I interview <laughs> you, uh, you'll be talking about things that happened 30 years ago. Okay. Uh, this this will be an interview that stuck with me, right? This one right here. Um, <laughs> when you think about the future of C-SPAN, I don't know. What do you think about the future of C-SPAN? Is it going to be just what it is now? Is it going to be – do you think it's it's going to change? I think it's in the hands of the gods. <laughs> I mean, it really is in the hands of people other than us. We we can only do, I'm talking about the 280 people that work at C-SPAN, we can only do what we know. We have to be on our toes, though. I mean, we are into every technology. Uh, our industries let us do this, which they would, they didn't have to because they pay the freight, the satellite providers, but primarily the cable providers and the industry is consolidating like it never has before. I mean, right. there was a time when it was all broken up, right. and now it's all coming back together. Um, there is a, you know, a minor fear that there'll only be one company left and after this is all over, and they'll one day say, "Well, we've had enough of that. You can get mm -hmm. all that they do somewhere else." But who knows what's going to happen? And we're just going to do the best we can to be positioned 
to move if we have to, if somebody comes along and says, We've, we don't need you anymore. Hmm. And do you imagine yourself continuing to interview people and continuing to read books and ask questions about them for the foreseeable future on C-SPAN? Well, I'm 75 years old. I'm amazed at how good I feel now. But you know, when you get into this time of your life, you never know. And you never know when somebody's going to say to me, don't you think you've done enough of that? Uh, <laughs> you're starting to drool, get off the air. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun right now. And I don't know how, if I leave tomorrow or today, it won't really matter that much. It'll matter more to me than anybody else. But it's a, for me right now, interviewing somebody, and I've got three books that I'm reading right now, one by Tom Reed on tax, one uh, by David McCullough, his new book coming out, and one by uh, a historian on Andrew Jackson. Hmm. Uh, I can't wait to get up every day and go to those books because <laughs> I know I'm going to learn something. It's just, it's just personally, I'm being a little bit selfish right now because I'd rather do this than, than anything. Brian Lamb is the founder and former CEO of C-SPAN. Brian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kara. It was fun. Maybe not surprisingly, at the end of our interview, the master interviewer said that he had a couple of questions for me. Brian, did you have a question? Yes, I do, Kara. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a series. I have three or four questions. Anyway, um, where are you from? Well, I was born in Peterborough, New Hampshire. And what got you into this business? Oh, gosh. Totally, totally circuitously. I uh, was... At one point, I mentioned that when I started this show, I got $200 a week. The good news for you is that you got $200 for one Saturday show. I got $150 for a whole week working as a freelancer for UPI Audio, but it was a few years before you I was going to say, was it 2010? Because, no, 2011. 1968. I'm going to say you made out pretty well compared to me. We've got Brian Lamb's mini interview of me on our website, innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. One of the great ironies of political polarization is that losing in the 2016 election and the angst that that has caused has turned out to be hugely profitable if you're a big-time entertainment personality. I am Samantha Bee. Oh, my God, thank you so much. Guys, please, wow. Welcome to Full Frontal. Wow, what a week for our poor president. He's been bombing harder than Mike Huckabee at an open mic night, and his Republican friends can't get out the door fast enough. I have a feeling January 20th, 2017, will be the day time travelers go back to to try and save the future. This election hasn't so much appealed to our better angels as it has groped our better angels, mocked their weight, and called them sixes at best. Hollywood, which is famously a left-leaning town, has seen political humor skyrocket in popularity. Michael Schneider is host of KCRW's podcast, The Spinoff, and he's looked at how the president is changing the entertainment industry and whether that shift is different from the kind of partisan divides that we have seen in the past. Michael's also executive editor of IndieWire, and he's former chief content officer for TV Guide. Michael, welcome to the show. 
Hi there. So give me a sense, just sort of big picture of how you think the Trump candidacy um, and now the Trump presidency uh, is changing television. Well, the biggest change probably and the most obvious one is in late night, where you've seen this massive sea change happen relatively fast in that you've got a number of these new hosts who came on in the past couple of years. Uh, Stephen Colbert over at CBS, who took over for David Letterman. Uh, Trevor Noah, uh, now the host of The Daily Show, took over, of course, for Jon Stewart. Samantha Bee started a new show at uh, TBS. She used to be a contributor to The Daily Show. So all these new shows came along in the past year or two. But like any new show, show, uh, they, they kind of struggled in the beginning. A lot of folks trying to figure out their voice. So, you know, fast forward to the past couple of months and, of course, the inauguration of Donald Trump and these hosts are on fire. So uh, let's stick with late night for a minute um, and with Colbert uh, because he famously struggled. Things were not going well in the ratings. Uh, the head of CBS had to had to meet with him. And um, it was really, in a lot of ways, the election of Donald Trump that kind of helped Colbert find, you know, kind of what he was good at, find success on CBS. And he did it, I think, not by following the old rules that that Leno and that Letterman had followed and not by doing broad comedy for a broad audience, but really by offending a lot of people and, um, you know, obviously winning over a lot of other people. isn't that breaking uh, the traditional rules? Well, I think in general, these days, old rules don't apply anywhere, as we've noticed. So that's the one thing. But go back to The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and uh, The Colbert Report with Stephen Colbert. Those were very partisan shows, uh, but yet they were also very successful shows, especially in the younger demographics. Leno and Letterman were much more traditional. They did well with total viewers, with older viewers, but not necessarily with younger viewers as they flocked elsewhere. So combine that with the fact that we are living in this really fractured television age where people no longer have to rely just on the traditional broadcast networks to get their entertainment. So audiences have really been sliced down. And so what's considered a success now is much smaller than it used to be mm. uh, because you're dealing with fractured audiences. So Does that mean that Colbert have... in some ways doesn't play by the same rules as Leno because... Leno or Letterman, they were trying to appeal to the vast sort of, you know, the broad swaths of the country and Colbert can win with less. Yeah, exactly. So you can do very well with smaller slice of the audience. But all of these hosts have risen to the occasion. But Colbert in particular was really being trounced over the past year by The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, who, uh, of course, made a name for himself with pop culture parodies. uh, He does a really lighthearted show and was dominating in the ratings uh, ever since he took over for Jay Leno. But there was a change, and there are a number of reasons to sort of point to the change. Of course, Colbert rose to the occasion, but Fallon is really taking it on the chin for something that he did when when uh, Donald Trump was actually Is this the hair thing? Like he ruffled yes. uh, Donald Trump's hair? Who knew that that could have such repercussions? Donald, I, I want to ask you, because the next time I see you, 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 you could be the president of the United States. I just wanted to know if there's something we could do that's just not presidential really or something that that we can do now that we're just both civilians like <laughs> like what this is can I'm, I'm not liking the sound <laughs> of this go ahead can i mess your hair up 
it was the moment that things changed, I think, for Jimmy Fallon. And, and he's struggling to still sort of live that down now. And at the same time, Colbert came in with this biting commentary. And he's kind of the host that people are looking for now in kind of dealing with things. And so we've seen a ratings change. Now, in the young demo, Fallon is still dominating. But mm. in, in overall viewership, Colbert's now ahead. And as we tape this, he has now won 10 weeks in a row, which a year ago would have been astounding. But now that's sort of that's where things are going. How would you contrast the sort of Trump role on TV and how Trump changes TV with other presidents? Because Nixon was on laughing and, you know, Obama slow jammed the news and, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan was no stranger to TV. Obviously, he had hosted a show. How would you contrast what's happening now with or compare it to what's happened before? Yeah, I think what we saw in the past was, uh, you know, presidents, for the most part, when they showed up on television, it was more in an entertainment capacity. It was, uh, you know, they, they were trying to humanize themselves. So it was very much of a, uh, you know, almost a campaign style presence. Uh, what we're seeing with Trump, though, is it involves policy. It involves the news networks. He's very engaged with them. And so you're actually seeing in real time him formulate his policies while interacting with the news networks, mm. in particular Fox News. We're really in uncharted territory with the Trump administration because we've never seen a president like Trump. I mean, this is a man, by the way, who was created by television. Right. That's the, the big irony of all of this. Yeah, that is. This is someone who you know, a lot of these hosts have spent a lot of time with. You know, he sat on their couches, mm-hmm. but also back when Donald Trump was host of The Apprentice, he was at media events. He was regularly on panels at press tours. You know, he was a TV star. So there's also this awkwardness of this is a man who was created by reality TV, by the very medium who is now sort of uh, mocking him and, and criticizing him. They sort of know his tool book, but he knows their tool book. Well, and there's also this sense, as you say, that he is engaged with ratings, you know, that he argues with Arnold Schwarzenegger about ratings. I mean, that the things that Hollywood cares about, President Trump cares about, too. Yeah. No, it's funny because I've seen a number of photos when he was uh, still president-elect. Uh, Trump invited a lot of people over to Trump Tower, and he was constantly taking photos in front of a wall of pictures. And it was all newspaper clips and magazine clips, mm. uh, especially about The Apprentice. I kept seeing one you know, big variety front page all about The Apprentice ratings back when it was a juggernaut. And it's like, okay, that's what he cares. That's what's <laughs> on his wall are how great his ratings were for The right, Apprentice. Right. And, and so there's this acknowledgement that this is a television president. This is mm. what he cares about. He's watching SNL. So when the SNL writers are writing a sketch that involves Trump, in the back of their mind, they know there's a good chance the president is going to watch this. So I don't know if they feel a little more responsibility to what they write and how they write it, but that's got to be pretty heady when you're in that SNL writer's room realizing, okay, whatever we do today may impact the president's view on Saturday or how he looks at Sean Spicer or right, what right. have you. So yeah, I, it's, it's an interesting time. So, as you said, this is obviously a president who used to have a TV career. Um, and I know he used to come to industry events and promote The Apprentice. I wonder, have you ever met him? Have you ever emailed with him? Anything? Yes. As a matter of fact, there was a period of time where he was actually out in Hollywood campaigning uh, with reporters 
in Los Angeles to try to get more press coverage in order to get that elusive Emmy that he really wanted. So about 10 years ago, I was a TV editor at Variety, and he took out a number of reporters from Variety to sit down and basically try to charm us, but also try to you know get an in, get a feel on how he could get that Emmy. I think he thought that just by taking a bunch of reporters from Variety out to lunch, he would be a shoe-in for that Emmy. That was it a wanted. nice restaurant? And of course, he never... Um, it was a decent restaurant. Um, and I see. It was... It was fine. He he bought out mm. the back of the restaurant, brought okay. a, his entourage. I remember him loving the chicken and, and raving about the chicken, which uh, kind of reminds me now of the chocolate cake that he keeps raving about as he bombs Syria. But uh, it's interesting what he sort of kept his eye really on. But, mm. you know, so he went around and he really campaigned to get that Emmy and, and never got that Emmy. And that's why a couple years later, whenever the Emmy Awards were telecast, he would go on Twitter and just trash the Emmys. Mm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Michael Schneider, executive editor of IndieWire and host of KCRW's podcast, The Spinoff. Um, just deeper into the bowels of Hollywood for a second, do you think that the Trump presidency has actually changed Hollywood at all? Is it something that people talk about? And I'm talking about behind the scenes. Before we go back in front of the scenes, behind the scenes now, is it something that you think is affecting anything? Yeah, I mean, I think a little bit uh, both psychologically, but also from a business perspective. I think in the weeks following the election, it did hit a lot of a lot of people hard, especially on the creative side, and it also impacted a lot of uh, actual TV shows and and movies storylines that people were working on. Mm. Uh, I've talked to so many executive producers now who said that they obviously write ahead, so shows that are now airing in the spring were actually written last fall before the election. Mm. I think a lot of people wrote scripts with the assumption that Hillary mm. Clinton was going to be the president. So they wrote, uh, you know, some Hillary jokes in their scripts. They sort of really? wrote with a. They with wrote a, in with... the fall, like, here's a good May joke, something about Hillary Clinton being president. Like, they would, you, know, you think that that. Yeah, or even just references. There's okay. one show uh, on the Sci Fi Network, for example, it's called The Magicians, and it takes place in this magical world of it that's called Fillery. Okay. So in the show, as they're writing it, they made a bunch of jokes about one character who is a, a female who has risen to power, and they kept referring to her as Fillory Clinton. Right. And apparently that appeared in their scripts throughout the season. Oh, you know, that's a running joke, and isn't that right. going to be funny right, right. when Hillary Clinton is president? Well, cut to Hillary Clinton's not president. So in post-production, they had to go back and erase, scrub a lot of those references Whoa. because now they, they, they feel really weird and outdated and, and strange right. to, to see right. this, you know, this spring. Do you worry at all that we could be headed towards a situation in which Hollywood execs think, you know, I'm going to do my programming by thinking about blue states and red states. So this show is going to be for the coast and this show is going to be for the heartland. And that in that way, uh, programming, television programming is going to get ever more polarized. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because that was a concern I had when I did start hearing that some execs were saying, well, you know what, we got to start focusing on the red states. Let's start developing shows for them. And to me, it's that's not the answer to suddenly create shows that you think, oh, the red states will like. How about just doing really good broad shows that you think will get a large audience in general? Because 
you know, Hollywood's idea of what a show that a red state audience might like isn't necessarily what a red state audience might actually like. Right. And then you're going to polarize the blue states. So mm-hmm. why why are we why are we thinking in terms of blue and red when we really should just be thinking about okay, what's what's a good broad show like? The Walking Dead. That's an AMC show that is still one of the most popular shows in all of television. And that's a show that's a perfect example of it's not blue, it's not red. It's just a a show that appeals to the broad audiences for different reasons. You know, maybe red state audiences love a certain aspect of The Walking Dead and blue state audiences love another aspect, but you've got enough there for everyone. I wonder if you think that uh, the Trump presidency is going to have lasting effects on the things we've been talking about, on comedy, on Hollywood, on the business end of things, if this is, you know, something that is really shifting the industry somehow? Um, That's a good question. And I I wonder, you know, interestingly, I I find that I hear that a lot from reality producers who, Mm. you know, sort of feel a little more of a responsibility these days, perhaps, Mm. because one of their big stars actually managed to become president. Sure. They could be crafting the next president on Real Housewives of wherever. (laughs) Exactly. And anything's possible these days. Uh, you know, the, the next president could be on Vanderpump Rules as we speak. Sure. So there's 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 sort of that acknowledgement that, oh, you know, we do we do wield some power. And that does, uh, you know, how we portray people on television does have some impact. So we need to think about these things. You know, some people are thinking about that more than others. But, uh, you know, it's it's I think the the shock to the system is still a little too new and, and people are still sort of adjusting to what does this all mean for the culture? What does this mean for society? What does this mean for comedy? What does this mean for entertainment? Uh, it's going to be an interesting uh, next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Michael Schneider is executive editor of IndieWire. He's former chief content officer for TV Guide, and he's host of KCRW's podcast, The Spinoff. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help this week from Matt Toda. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub is sponsored by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. And by the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. PRI. Public Radio International.